0: Thank you, Ron. If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Our passage this morning is highly practical, deals with something that every Christian deals with and faces not just from time to time, but throughout their lives. The topic of this passage is announced twice. There at the beginning in verse 15... Jesus says to his disciples, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Again, in verse 21, Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. Our passage last week that Jordan Green covered warned us against causing another brother to sin. Here, we turn and learn what we do when our brother or our sister sins against us. I can't imagine a more relevant topic. In a community of sinners, we are going to sin against one another regularly. What do we do when that happens? We're given two main commands in this passage from Jesus. But before we look at those commands and read the passage, I want to highlight the overarching reason that we should obey the commands that Jesus gives us here. Jesus' teaching is grounded in a fundamental truth that if we belong to him, we are, as the title of my sermon suggests, the family of the forgiven. We are sinners who have been saved by grace. And as forgiven sinners, we come into the family of God. It's not just reconciliation between me and God. We are saved into a family, into a community. This is who we are, forgiven sinners Members of the family of God, and who we are affects what we do. So, what should you do as the family of the forgiven when one of your Christian brothers or sisters sins against you? Well, let's see what Jesus has to say to us on this topic. If you would please stand for the reading of God's Word, we'll begin reading in verse 15 through the end of the chapter. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What are you to do when a brother or sister in the family of God sins against you there are two things given in this passage first seek to restore fellowship jesus lays out a process of how to approach someone who has sinned against us now i want to say at the outset that there are clearly times as proverbs points out when it is good a glory to overlook an offense and i think we should do that very often but there are other times when it is not possible to overlook an offense because if we do it will do damage to the relationship or it may do damage to the person who is sinning and that's what jesus is dealing with here he lays out a four step Process. The first thing we need to do is to go directly to the person who has sinned or specifically sinned against us. The whole process is designed to protect the reputation of the person who has sinned, if possible. That's why the steps move from the smallest to the greatest, to protect the reputation of the person who has sinned. So, what does that mean? You don't talk about what has happened behind that person's back. You don't just go to their supervisor. You certainly don't post the offense on Facebook. You go privately, out of respect, in honor to that person and directly address them. You tell them their fault. Or more literally, you try to convince them of their fault. Galatians 6 1 gives an important qualification to this command. Sounds very similar, but then there is something that is added at the end. He says, Brothers, again, speaking internally to the family of God. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We are called to confront sin, something we're a little hesitant to do. But we are also called to confront in a spirit of gentleness. And what is the goal of the whole process? It is to gain your brother. It is to restore fellowship. It is not simply to point out someone's sin. The goal is repentance. The goal is reconciliation. And the only way that that repentance and reconciliation can come about is if we do point out the sin. But the goal is not to point out the sin. The goal is is to see restoration of fellowship. The heart of this process is found in the context from last week. Our passage comes on the heels of a very important paragraph in Jesus' teaching. Jesus' instruction about the lost sheep. What does God do when one of His sheep is lost? He goes after them. Why? to bring them back into the fold, not to give them a weapon, to bring them back into the fold. Jesus is here in this passage following up on that teaching. A person who has sinned or broken fellowship with another believer is, in a sense, lost, going to them and pointing out their sin is an effort to bring them home, to restore fellowship, for them to be reconciled to God and to be reconciled to one another in the body. We must always keep this goal in mind. But sometimes this goal is not achieved one-on-one. And so Jesus tells us what to do if the person who sins will not listen when it's just the two of us. He says, take two or three others along with you as witnesses. The Old Testament was clear that any charge that was brought against someone needed to be established by two or three witnesses. I think there are probably a couple of reasons why Jesus gives this second step. The obvious reason is that it's important that the truth is established. A person, me, I may feel that you have sinned or that you have wronged me, but in fact, you haven't. Bringing along a couple of other people may help to sort out the truth of the matter. But another reason I think this step is in place is because when there are a couple of other people involved, maybe they will be more effective in winning the brother or the sister who is straying from the flock. And that, again, is the goal of this whole process. But even then, sometimes people will still not turn around. And when this happens, Jesus gives a third step in the process. If they won't listen to the two or three witnesses, the matter is to be brought before the whole church, the whole assembly. And if they won't listen even to the church, Jesus gives a final step. He says, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, what does he mean by this? We need to bear in mind the context of this whole passage is dealing with what to do when a brother or a sister, a family member, so to speak, within the family of God, sins against you. It's not speaking about when those outside of the church sin against you. It's about pursuing a fellow believer, someone who's in the family of God. And Jesus is speaking in a Jewish context. And that's why he says, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. A Gentile or a tax collector were outsiders to a Jew. They didn't have fellowship with them. They weren't like family. And so what Jesus is saying is that if your brother won't repent of their sin, even after you have pursued them repeatedly in love, and if they won't repent even after the church has spoken on the matter, then you can no longer treat them like a brother. Now, that does not mean that you should no longer treat them like a human. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. But I believe that treating a person like a Gentile or a tax collector is another way of saying that this person should be removed from fellowship in the church, or what some would call church discipline, or excommunication, which literally means you don't come to the communion table. I don't really like calling this final step excommunication church discipline. And the reason for that is I believe that this whole process we've just laid out is church discipline. Every time we talk to somebody about their sin, and call them to repent. Every time somebody comes to talk to us about our sin and calls us to repent, we're engaged in church discipline, which I believe church discipline is simply corrective discipleship. You have kind of positive discipleship, training somebody how to read their Bible, how to pray, but we all need from time to time corrective discipleship where people come and correct us to get us back on the right path. That's church discipline in a sense. And we all need that. Church discipline is not only an official action by the church or the elders of the church to remove somebody from membership or to keep them from coming to communion. Church discipline happens every time that we seek to restore somebody to right relationship with God right relationship with other believers who are in sin, and we need that. It's part of how we make progress in the Christian life. It's only on those rare occasions when we're not effective in those efforts that we move to more formal church discipline or removing somebody from membership. But we need to turn to this final and rare step just so that we're clear on it. Why is it that the church can remove somebody from fellowship? The answer is found in verses 18 to 20. In all of this heaven and earth language. Why can the church remove somebody from fellowship? This is what I think it is teaching. Because the church on earth has the authority from heaven to receive believers into fellowship and the authority to remove them from fellowship. In verses 15 to 17, all the verbs and pronouns are singular. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him. But beginning in verse 18, the verbs become plural. You can't see that in the English, but it's the way that it is In the Greek, the plural pronouns are speaking of the church. Whatever you, the people assembled in the church, bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you, the church, loose on earth, shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among us. What this seems to be saying is that the church on earth has the authority of heaven when it makes decisions about receiving or removing a person from their church fellowship. If they bind, they are prohibiting a person from joining the fellowship. If they loose, they are permitting a person for fellowship, and they are authorized to do that. If they agree about a decision like is spoken of here, of treating a person like a Gentile or a tax collector, then that agreement is validated by God. That is not to say that the church makes somebody a Christian. It is not to say that. It is not to say that the church makes decisions that are always right, that they are infallible, it is simply to say that the church has the God-given responsibility to receive and to remove people from fellowship. Jesus, the risen one, who has all authority where? In heaven and on earth. Jesus, who is with us till the very end of the age, is also present with the church When it makes decisions like this, difficult as they may be. So, the reason the church can remove someone from fellowship is because they have been authorized to do so, but the reason why they can remove someone is not near as important as why they should. Why should we? Remove somebody from fellowship if they repeatedly refuse to repent of their sin. I think the answer to this question also is found in the heaven and earth language in these verses. This heaven and earth language is key to Matthew's gospel. It's not just found here. It's throughout the entire gospel. Jesus has spent a lot of time teaching his disciples what citizens of the kingdom of heaven look like. Think, for example, of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it's all about, right? Or specifically, the Lord's Prayer. What do we learn in the Lord's Prayer? The heart of the prayer is a desire for God's name to be hallowed, to be glorified. How will that happen? As the kingdom of heaven comes and the will of the Father is done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' desire for the church on earth is to honor the God of heaven. Jesus wants citizens of the kingdom to become like the king so that the Father in heaven would be glorified on earth in the church that's why Jesus came isn't it Jesus came to seek and to save the lost he seeks those outside of the fold to bring them into the fold he even seeks Gentiles and tax collectors he comes to people just as they are but he refuses to leave them that way he wants them to become just like him transformed into the image of the Son of God so that we can reflect the glory of God on earth. As we love God and love one another, we fulfill that purpose of glorifying God. Well, what does all of this have to do with church discipline? Well, when a person in the church is dug in In their sin, and refuses to repent, are they hallowing the name of God? Are they honoring God's name? No. Are they representing the kingdom of heaven on earth? No. And so, what do we do? We need to pursue them, even as Jesus pursued us. We need to call them to repent, like Jesus calls us to repent but if they refuse to be restored, you can't keep treating them like they're citizens of the kingdom. You need to change your posture toward them. You don't stop loving them. Heaven forbid! Did Jesus stop loving those who were outside of the kingdom? No! Should we stop loving those Who refuse to repent? No. We simply change our orientation towards them. Our love for them now becomes more of an evangelistic type of a love and less of a brotherly type of a love. You can't keep treating them like they belong to the king when they will not bow the knee to the king. Instead, you call them to repent of their sins and to embrace Jesus as Savior and as Lord. Removing a person from fellowship in the church seems so harsh, so unloving, but it is actually designed by God to bring them back into fellowship. That's the goal of the whole thing. That's what we see in this other major passage in 1 Corinthians 5 on church discipline when Paul told the Corinthians to put the unrepentant sinner out of fellowship within the church he said the purpose was what? to save them that's always the goal and we must never lose sight of the goal church discipline is not punitive it always seeks to restore to fellowship the one who is straying from God and the family of God. If this loving heart is not already clear to you, hopefully it will become clearer as we move to the second part of the passage. In verses 21 to 35, Jesus gives the family of God another thing to do when a brother sins against us. He teaches us to forgive the sinner generously. Jesus' teaching in verses 15 to 20 leads Peter to ask him a question, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Where does this come from? Well, in that day, the rabbis said that if someone sinned against you, you needed to forgive them three times. Peter is basically saying, what do you think about seven, Jesus? That's that's the perfect number. And it's a lot more than what the rabbis are teaching. Is that enough? And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or maybe even it reads 70 times times. 7. What does Jesus mean by this? I believe that he is referring back to Genesis 4 and teaching us something very important about the character of forgiveness. Remember in Genesis 4 when Cain killed Abel, God punished Cain and said to him, you are going to be a fugitive on the earth. And Cain replied to God, he said, this is more than I can handle as I'm roaming around on the earth. People are going to see me and they're going to kill me. And God says, no, if anybody kills Cain, vengeance will be on him sevenfold. Well, a little later in the chapter, one of Cain's descendants, Lamech, somebody strikes him and he killed the man. And what he said to his two wives was this. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Do you see why I think Jesus may be referring to this incident? He's basically saying vengeance is the way of the earth. Revenge. Paybacks for wrong. Somebody wrongs you, and so you go after them. Somebody hurts you, so you hurt them. But this is not the way of the kingdom of heaven. The way of the kingdom is the way of forgiveness. Citizens of heaven need to forgive as much as citizens of the earth are intent on vengeance. Life in the kingdom is not about Paybacks of getting what's owed to you. Life in the kingdom is about generosity and forgiveness. And anyone who is a citizen of the kingdom should know this. God has not paid us back what we deserve, He has forgiven us generously. We are the family of the forgiven, and the family of the forgiven should be a forgiving family. That's my sermon in a sentence. The family of the forgiven, which is what we are if we're in Christ, should be a forgiving family. It should be one of the chief characteristics in our life together. To illustrate this point, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant. There was a king who had a servant who owed him 10,000 talents. The servant couldn't pay his debt, so he pleaded with the king to, for, uh, to, to give him more time. But when the king heard this plea, what did he do? He didn't simply grant him more time, he forgave the debt. Now, to put this into perspective, we need to understand how much money the king forgave the servant 10,000 talents. Any of you know how much that is? A talent was 6,000 denarii. A denarii was one day's wage. So 10,000 talents was 60 million denarii. Do the math on that. As one commentator says, this is Jesus' way. 10,000, by the way, what is the word? It is... uh, Oh, it's slipping me, and I didn't write it down. A myriad. (laughs) This is Jesus' way of saying, in our language today, zillions of dollars. The point is, he couldn't pay the debt back. It was impossible to do so. But when he pleaded with the king, the king in his generosity forgave the debt. But then when the servant went out from the presence of the king, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a small debt in comparison. Actually, the first servant owed almost a million times as much as the fellow servant. And so how would you expect him to treat the servant who owed him a hundred denarii? You'd expect him to treat the servant like the king treated him. Isn't that the way the logic flows? But he didn't. He choked him, demanded that he pay the debt. And when the man pleaded with him, as he had earlier pleaded with the king, he refused to show him mercy. He put him in debtor's prison until the debt could be paid. The king catches wind of this how does he respond he says you wicked servant how could you do this after i forgave you wouldn't it make sense that you would forgive your fellow servant you clearly don't understand the mercy that you have been received that you have received and so in his anger he put him into debtor's prison until he could pay when would he be able to pay never In verse 35, Jesus makes the point of this parable very plain. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What is Jesus' point? If we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are the family of the forgiven. And as the family of the forgiven, we need to be a forgiving family. This passage doesn't spell out how God has forgiven us, but other parts of Matthew in the New Testament do. And the Bible teaches us that in our sin, we owe God a debt we could never pay, much more than zillions of dollars. It's beyond any comprehension, the debt that we owe God. But God sent his own son who has paid the price for us settled the debt through giving his life on the cross if we believe in Jesus we have forgiveness of our sins let me just put it very plainly we deserve something worse than rotting in debtors prison we deserve to rot in hell but God has had pity on us if you plead to merc- for mercy and believe that that mercy is found in Jesus, you are forgiven. How should this affect the way that you live? Well, if you really understand through faith the grace and the mercy of God, you will extend grace and mercy to others. If you really grasp that you are forgiven, you will forgive. How much has God forgiven us? Limitless. Therefore, our forgiveness toward others should also be without limit. And we certainly shouldn't seek revenge or payback when we have been wronged. To bring this full circle, if our brother or sister sins against us and we go and tell them their fault, and if they listen to us, if they repent, then we need to forgive them. to not continue to hold what they have done against us, against them. We need to celebrate the mercy of God, celebrate the restoration of relationship and then commit to live in light of that forgiveness and reconciliation and not continue to hold on. Jesus' point is a little stronger than that though. He's basically saying what he already said in chapter 6, that if you can't do that, if you can't forgive others, you won't be forgiven. That hurts. Why do you think he says that? I think the point is that if you won't forgive others, It's interesting. What's the first part of the passage about if a person won't repent? If you won't forgive others, isn't that a failure for you to repent since we've been called to forgive others? If you won't forgive others, it probably reveals that you don't really understand and embrace what God has done for you in Christ. And if you don't understand what God has done for you in Christ, then you are not forgiven in Christ. If you are forgiven, you will forgive. And if you've come into the family of God, you will love God and love those who are in the family of God. That's what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. The family of the forgiven is a forgiving family may it be so here at first free let us pray father we thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in jesus christ i pray that we would embrace it by faith that this truth of your love would grow deep in our hearts so that it would flow out of our hearts into the way that we treat one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.